I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Kia ora and welcome to another episode of the Aotearoa Rugby Pod. I'm Ross Carl, joined as usual by my partner in crime, James Parsons. We have no Bryn Hall this week, Jim, James. He's over in Australia doing what the Crusaders do. I reckon we've done better. We've got another front rower. <laughs> we've brought another front rower in. The front row show. Welcoming to the show, Ben Darwin, 28-time Wallabies prop. Uh, got multiple coaching uh, things in his resume and runs an analytics company called Gainline Analytics. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Great. Tell us a little bit about Gainline Analytics. What do you guys do in a professional sporting sense? It comes off the back of my experiences, which was being at the Brumbies and everyone telling us that the Brumbies should fail, and then the team doing what many people say call punch above their weight. So I was always interested into why teams kind of punch above their weight, and I was always interested as to why rugby was successful. Um, the era that I played, and these two things are not correlated, um, we were very lucky to have a period of success against much larger countries than ourselves, and so... Um, I started doing an analysis when I was at the Melbourne Rebels. I also coached for the Western Force. And one of the questions they asked us was, how long is it going to take to win? So in doing that, I started off this process and then eventually ended up, after coaching at a few more different places, um, that uh, coaching wasn't for me. Uh, it didn't seem like anywhere that I went, you know, I could go one place and win everything, go somewhere else and not win anything. So I, I sort of felt like maybe I wasn't necessarily making as much of a difference as I could. And then I started this business in 13. And one of the first things we were actually doing was selling data to French rugby clubs on player availability and who was going where in the world. And the French are obviously in a buying mood at that point. This is like 2013. And as we built this database, we started to notice certain things about certain clubs. And um, as we built this idea around, you know, clubs being buy or build, transfer uh, systems, you know, alignment of systems, um, we started to realise we could actually predict their behaviour. And if we could predict their behaviour, maybe we could change their behaviour. And so we started having conversations with clubs as we do now. I think we've done work with 70 or 80 different clubs or organisations around the world in looking at what creates success um, or failure and trying to avoid some of those uh, pitfalls. What are the common traits uh, in success? So there's a number we use very simply, which is called TWI, which basically represents are you a buyer or a build? And so, for example, in 2020, uh, the number one TWI team, and we, we measure this before the season begins, won, obviously, Super Rugby New Zealand. They won the Pro 14, won the English Premiership, uh, the NRL, the AFL, the A-League, the NBL. Um, I think eight of the nine pops we looked at in 2020 um, and generally about sort of seven, 70 to 80% of the competitions we look at. But then we started looking at it on a game-by-game game basis and we started to come up with other things that we could use um, to understand what we would call understanding. So understanding between participants, understanding of participants in a system and then participants in a role. So if I give an example, um, uh, when New Zealand played Ireland in Chicago, you had... Um, a, a number of gaps in understanding for New Zealand. One was in the centres. You had guys who'd, who'd come in who hadn't necessarily played together in the centres. You had Kano at five. So he's playing a role he hasn't previously played before, which means the right-hand side of your scrum is done, your defensive line-out is gone, your attack line-out is gone. And then we know that if, if a team fields a team like that, then they'll tend to 
tend to underperform. And that's not saying any of those players are bad players. That's just saying um, this is the way the team is constructed on that day. And each team is constructed in a different way on, different, on each different day. All right. That's interesting. That is very interesting. <laughs> How are the Blues looking? <laughs> uh, not great. All the New Zealand teams have come off quite a bit in the last two to three years, as have the All Blacks. Um, sort of the All Blacks started to come back around 16, 17. They, they, you know, the last 11 to 15 was obviously great and, and even up, leading up to 11 was, was, was very, very good. But a lot of other things have happened too around world rugby and how other countries have changed, other systems have changed. Obviously, a lot's changed for Australian rugby. When I hear that, that makes me think that teams like the Rebels and the Force are up against it because it's hard to get cohesion without a long-term development plan that is working throughout the decades. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you can say that, but if you look, for example, at well, how have teams done when they've been successful from the beginning? And I think that if you look at the, the, the Brumbies, for example, when they first started, something very important had happened a couple of years early, which they'd allowed a Canberra-based team in the Sydney competition. And so even before the Brumbies had begun, the previous year, that team had played about 35 games. And so it just flowed on. And so after a couple of years of that, of the Brumbies basically playing together as that club or as the Brumbies, eventually it just overwhelmed the rest of Australian rugby because the cohesion of the team was just astronomical. Um, as was the cohesion of the Wallabies in, say, the 99 World Cup. We were 30, 40% of everyone else. And, you know, if you look at how that manifested itself when the starting team was on, they didn't allow a try. I think we only allowed eight tries in World Cups of the 90s um, as, as the Wallabies. So we were a very, <clears throat> very strongly uh, defensive. If you, look at, if you look at, say, when the provincial tournament started with the South Pacific tournament, so say 05, so it's 86 to 05, in those 21 years, I think 18 or 19 of those years, the Australian teams on average were the best defensive teams in the competition out of the South Africans and New Zealanders. So Australia, although it has a reputation of attacking play, our success has basically come when we choke teams to death. You know, in that in the late 90s, I think we were scoring 19 points to 13. Now we still score 19 points, but we're allowing 28, 30 points against the All Blacks. Seeing that Dave Rennie is the coach of the Wallabies, knowing that cohesion at the Chiefs was key, and Dave Rennie was amazing at bringing that side together. Does that give the Australian rugby public a little bit of hope, knowing that their coach has always been about cohesion? Um, it, it really, there's different forms of cohesion. And I think what he might be discussing there is, is around, are we getting on? Mm. Or are we, are we, do we have good people behaviourally? So if I could give you an example from Australian sport, there was a team called the West Coast Eagles in the AFL. And so they were in the finals, I think, um, you know, 19 out of 22 years or something like that. They won three titles. And there was this team, particularly in 2006, which was just extraordinary in the level of success they had. And their, their numbers, by our numbers, were spectacular. However, there was a rampant drug problem within the team. They were fighting amongst each other, didn't get on, didn't necessarily like each other. One of them has died of a drug overdose, three of them in jail, 10 arrests on drugs charges. Like this wasn't a well, this wasn't a, a well team, <laughs> but its ability to function was unbelievable. I'm not really a big believer in culture. I'm a big believer in system. And so we can find teams, you know, that don't get on. You know, the two guys who rode for New Zealand don't really get on. They're not best friends. You don't have to be. It's really about, do I know my job? You do. You know your job. Let's just do that job and get on with it. And you'll tend to get on well anyway. Whether we like each other, sweep the sheds, all that stuff, I don't really see any you know, value in that in terms of your ability to do your job, to do your role. Um, but what tends to happen is when teams are winning, we tend to point to culture as the causative effect, whereas it might actually more be a byproduct. That's interesting. So you need to have a coach who understands system, but it helps to have culture, but not necessarily the other way around. There's no, there's no, evidence, there's no statistical evidence that's the case. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure getting on means you'll stay a lot of the time. Um, with national teams, you want to keep playing. Um, for your country, so that's less of a problem. But 
you know, with West Coast, for example, two years after that or four years after that, a lot of the guys left because they were frustrated by the environment. Um, but, you know, they did this study in the NBA on on whether teams, um, the, the teams who are winning seem to be high-fiving a lot and grabbing each other on the ass, and, you know, they're saying this is great. And so then they tried to introduce that to teams who were coming last and it backfired terribly because none of the players knew each other. It's just unbelievably uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, you know, you try to do an honesty session with a bunch of guys that don't know each other, you know, hearing um, Stephen Fleming's comments about some of the things they had in New Zealand cricket to try to make the team better, um, they tend to backfire pretty badly. So um, what they found was is the teams that generally who were winning had been together a long time. Therefore, um, they were hugging each other because they'd just grown up together. Right. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't the causative impact, you know. There's you know if you if you look at the evidence in business behind team building exercises and outcome, there's no correlation between them. If you climb a mountain together, you get better at climbing a mountain, but it doesn't mean nine knows where to put the ball on ten's chest. You need to do a thousand passes between nine and ten. Um, that that for me tends to be more of the important componentry. Does that sound pretty familiar to you? Yeah, I th I think it has to. Be, I agree. It has to be genuine and authentic if you're going to do a team building exercise to get a better rapport as a teammate but I also agree that for me throwing in the line out that's not going to make me a better line out thrower to a lock you're going to have to do that time and time again to be better at that skill but I do think there is um, a relevantness to that teamwork outside of the rugby environment to get the I suppose the so-called culture as they say to make you want to stay around and build that cohesion and that ability to have that sustained success over time because I think you need a core group of players to want to stay around for a long period of time so that they can pass things on to the next group so that they want to stay on so that you can have that sustained success and I think that's where the culture element comes in and then that builds the culture that people want to go out there and throw the hundred line outs because they see you doing it and they're like okay well that's what takes success and then it filters on forever and a day if, mm. you, if you know what I mean and, and I agree I think it sort of happened maybe by mistake in some cases but in other cases when you're new and maybe form teams you have to make it more purposeful. Yeah yeah. Um, and that's where you talk about the Storm or we talk about the Crusaders. With the Storm, you've had Bellamy there for a long, 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 long time. With the Crusaders, each new coach that comes in was playing in that team beforehand. They well and truly understood what it took. And then you bring in little players at a time. Their rotation system has been so good. You know, when there's an injury, you bring in a young guy and next thing you know, he's in that system as well. And yeah, it but works. a lot of those young guys have been brought into the Crusaders environment from the Canterbury team to just yeah. train. Yeah. You know, but you know, like so they've been in the system and now Tasman's been very successful, so they're brought in in the environment. Whereas the Storm, I feel because Bellamy's been there a long time now, but he's been there from the start. And I'd say, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, he was probably a little bit more purposeful about the standards and what was needed at the start when he was starting off to create that so called culture or environment. Well, I think when the, when the storm first started off, what was interesting about them, so this is prior to Bellamy, is, and we've seen this quite a number of times, is they took another team that had played together and they brought them in. So that team was actually built off the back of Newcastle Reserve Grade, which had won a, cup, in a title a couple of years before, and then formed the base of this team called the Hunter Mariners, which is, this is a Super League war. And so when they actually came in, they already had more shared experience and a lot of NRL clubs do already. They were also unbelievably consistent in their first two years, which drove them towards, you know, the title and, and in the back of the Super League war. So all the other teams were in chaos. When Bellamy came on board, he really introduced more of a, uh, you know, an internal recruitment path. Um, and, and what's really interesting is, you know, when Cameron Smith played his 300th game, he said, uh, they said, what was it about Cameron Smith you thought was so special? He said, nothing, I can't remember him. There was nothing interesting about him at all. <laughs> I think a lot of the time we retrospectively place this notion of these guys being amazing, whereas Cooper Cronk was a rugby union player that Matthew John said is not going to make it. Cameron Smith's working in a printing factory. Billy Slater was, you know, a jockey who was dropped from his touch football team. And yet they together at Brisbane North and with Inglis came down and had this spine that was together for an unbelievable amount of games that then formed the back, the basis of the Queensland spine, the Australian spine, and, you know, 
Queensland won 10, 10 in a row. Um, interestingly, there's nothing Bellamy could do about that as a New South Wales coach. He has the second worst uh, state of origin coaching record of any coach in, mm. in, the, in the history of state of origin. So he could not fix that problem uh, in that moment. In the same way, Robbie Deans couldn't fix Australia rugby, goes to Panasonic, wins four titles. Yeah. Um, what we what we do find is we talk about cohesion times skill equals capacity, and the job of a coach is to reach that capacity. And we can't find any coach in the world that can function above capacity in any sport. So, um, if there's any examples out there that people think of, please tell me. But we we generally find that there's not much they can do about it. Their job is to help a team to to reach what is their their potential. So so one of the things we find that is basically suicide is never introduce a centre in World Cups because 10, 12, 13 is where the most level of understanding is required. You need to have people playing in position that has a really positive impact on performance. Mm. Whereas when you have new people in those positions, you look at when Hugh Jones came in for Scotland, for example, uh, that, that, you know, Australia, unfortunately, you know, Junior Patea coming in in the quarters, um, it's, it just seems to be an absolute death knell because there's a law of diminishing returns. The 300th game between Cooper Conkey and Kevin Smith doesn't really matter. It's the early stages where the problems lie. And so whenever you get relationships in early stages is when you get things going, you know, catastrophically wrong. Um, uh, and we see that across so many different sports. It's, it's amazing. And so one of the things we do is we look at systems. So, for example, when a coach comes into a club, we found the more experience they have, the more the team tends to underperform. Because they, if you look at Gatlin of the Chiefs, for example, is they change so much to suit the way they might want to do something that the team is not unable to cope with that level of change, even if they are cohesive. It's almost like the cohesion works against them. The, the second component is role. So if you get people playing out of position, like I said, Kano from six to five, um, you know, different, you know, even even a lock at four or five, you look at England in the World Cup final having a four playing at five, you know, right side lock, um, that that component, and then you've got the interplay between people. Another interesting one we found actually was jerseys, is if you're using a jersey you haven't used before or played in quite a bit, that the ability of the team to attack drops off dramatically. They defend to the same rate, but so I think it, I think on average a game of legal union is about 21-19 to the home team. The attack drops to an average of 14 points, but the defence, 19 points doesn't change. Um, and so I was actually going through and looking last night at uh, uh, the 07 World Cup quarters. Uh, <laughs> We're going to so go there. France. And, We're going to go there. Things was they completely <laughs> lost the ability to offload. I think their offloads were something like like 30% accuracy in the second half. And, um, and, and, and that's, you know, that's the, I'm not saying necessarily a jersey. You know, Graham Henry talks a lot about the penalty count in that game. But when I've asked guys what happened, so I asked Sterling Mortlock and Danny Badiris, and they said, when you go to offload, you flinch. You go to turn to your teammate, and you're like, oh, hang on, is that my teammate? Mm. And it's just got to be different enough so you don't necessarily recognise it. Because we play games so much on feeling, um, you know, without sort of having to use our, use our conscious brain. Um, and, and that's why I think why change... I was actually asking Lottie Takiri the other day about switching codes, and he said... He had to concentrate so hard not to do what he did in rugby league. So going back to the dead ball, not scooping the ball over, because that equals, you know, five-metre scrum to the opposition, whereas in league, that's exactly what you do. And he said, you just couldn't concentrate that hard for that long in games to try to unlearn what he had learned. And unlearning is harder than learning, hmm. um, which is why transfer players struggle so much. It's amazing. You are talking to the folklore of New Zealand rugby in everything <laughs> you say. The grey jersey... I mean, you, you say grey jersey in New Zealand, people just cringe. And, and, and centres, we're talking Christian Cup, <laughs> Leon McDonald. Um, I remember having a conversation with Warren Gatland after the 2019 World Cup where he was saying he couldn't believe that Sonny Bill and Ryan Crotty weren't selected. You know, the, the consistency of centres has always been an issue for the New Zealand public. Come World Cup time, they freak out about it. Um, and you've got analytics that say that everything they freak out about is justified. 
what we've been doing basically for 10 years is talking to coaches and asking their opinion and they'll say something and we'll go, oh, okay, we want to go away and have a look at that. The, the thing with centres is the hardest position and yes. takes the longest time to build understanding in. The other thing is that New Zealand is generally a cohesive system in and of itself because it's small, right? You've got, and, and that, that used to be the advantage Australia had. We had the small system, you know, on a professional basis and that was our unfair advantage over the rest of the world. So um, now what tends to happen is the big systems like England and France will be terrible between World Cups, but they're what we call back end. So you look at, say, France in 11, they lose to Tonga, and yet they still make a final. You know, France and England, you know, you look at, say, England in 07, they lose to South Africa by 40, and yet four or five games later, because, because they don't generally have cohesion through club because they're so big, what will happen is they really don't get time together as a team until the World Cup, particularly now World Rugby's introduced that sort of three-month window leading into the tournament. So, you know, all form for us is completely out of the, out the window um, when it comes to World Cup. And if you look at what Japan did in the lead-up to 15 and the lead-up to 19, is they basically just kept the national team together for two or three years. And you saw that dramatic improvement because... The way Japanese rugby is built, you can't get any cohesion in the club because there's so many of them. So, you know, people will say New Zealand underperformed by not winning World Cups. It wasn't so much that. It was that the bigger countries were able to come to the table when they previously couldn't. You look at the improvement amongst the Celtic nations, who in many ways the Pro 14 has duplicated Super Rugby in a small amount of domestic teams playing together. The impact of that on, on the Welsh and the Irish has been unbelievably dramatic. You know, the Welsh, you know, wasn't popular, but David Moffat regionalised Welsh rugby from 12 to 9 to 5 to 4. And they won one Six Nations in the previous 15, 20 years or something and won five in the next 20 years. You know, they've, they've dramatically improved, or five in the next 16 years. And the Irish, the same. Um, and you can see it taking place over time. Um, that, that around the world now, there's much more teams who have cohesion. And I think the best example is last year, you know, the Haguaris slash Pumas, I'm not sure which one it was, beating the All Blacks. And the great shame of that is now being pulled apart because that was an accumulation of that decision to, 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 you know, not take a test team but take a bunch of kids, keep them together, and they just went ninth, seventh, you know, fifth, second, first. Then it flowed on to the Argentinian national team and, and they end up beating, beating the All Blacks, which was unthinkable to people a long time ago. Mm. Mm. Um, let's apply these ideas now to Super Rugby Trans-Tasman because what we've seen over the last two weeks is that we expected the Aussie sides to be a little bit closer and, and admittedly in the first week there were two very close games um, but in the second week it spread out a little bit more what is the story with the Australian teams needing what do they need to do to get that a little bit closer what have the trends been that you've noticed and in, in, that has created the slight division two weeks in? I, I think we need to go back to, I mean, let's not do the entire history of Australian rugby, even though it'd be fun. Um, we, we just go back to last year. You know, and ITM Cup is not super rugby, but it's close. And a lot of the teams that are in ITM are close to the super rugby teams. So what you've got is, is when super rugby finished last year, all the Australians just went back to play for their clubs or they played for the Wallabies. Where the New Zealand guys went back to ITM, so you had Canterbury and um, Tasman playing together, which basically just extends the Crusader season by 10 weeks. It's a 10-week preseason, then they have preseason, then away they go. So that's flowed in um, really nicely. So not having that for Australia last year, now we've got some budgetary concerns and they've now canned NRC which could theoretically make things worse because the cohesion that the Brumbies and the Reds have right now is off the back of the NRC that they've had for the last couple of years. Um, so there's there's a huge gap there. There's a there's a so it's, it's basically almost like the Australians are playing half a season, New Zealanders are playing full season. Then then you've got the componentry of you know a, a small system in Australia trying to function with a five on a five team basis and fill all of those spots. And then you've got, um, you've got things like Colpac, uh, you've got things like the, um, uh, you know, the European market that's affected Australia. 
you know, we don't have large amounts of people playing the game in Australia. So we have to be very cautious of what we have. And so slowly but surely, now over a 25-year basis, like I said, we've gone from three of the top five most stable teams in the world to I think we have one now in the top 20. Um, and, and what cohesion also does is it allows you to develop talent. So if you're constantly chopping and changing the players around you and the coaching and the system, you don't get better faster. You know, you look at the English, they tend to really develop late, particularly their forwards, you know, in the last sort of 20, 30 years. They don't tend to hit test level till they're 28, 29. As I remember them talking about, you know, Retallick being, you know, a great player at 24. They're saying that this doesn't happen in the UK. So, and if you look at French rugby, it's hard for the French, you know, people just don't seem to get better in France. So the stability of the system overall helps accelerate the skill acquisition of the athletes and so that slowed down a bit in Australia. Um, and so this is kind of like this set of outcomes that we're playing with, and none of it can be turned around quickly. No coach can really fix this problem. We've tried that. Every coach we've had in Australia has, has done worse than the bloke before him. So now maybe we need to think about the system a bit more. Yeah, and I, I think we need to be a little bit patient because if you look at the, the Aussie 20s, they've had a lot of success over the recent years. And then I just look at Brad Thorne's comments on the weekend. He goes, welcome to world class. Now we've just got to get back in the ring with them. And I think he, what he's sort of saying there is the more we can play the Kiwis, the more we'll get used to that standard and we'll be able to lift to that standard. And, and you know, obviously last year, like you said, they didn't get to play the Kiwis, but also they didn't get the full year of play. And, and that stunts your development, and, and, and that's going back to that Aussie 20s pack. You know, there's been a good crop of young players come through, but playing that half season, you know, you can only do so much in a pre-season or only so much at training. There's, you can't replicate playing, and, and missing that amount of footy and playing is a big loss in, in terms of your development. So I think there needs to be some growth in that system to allow them to have more footy and I think, I think that's, you, you've hit it on the head there, is the system is where they're short in that development. And, and I, I'm hoping that they, they realise that because the NRC was a great tool, I think. And it, I, I, I know financially and things, it wasn't working or whatever, but for what it gives the player, we know how important the Mitre 10 Cup is to the All Blacks and, and, and pro providing the next talent. And, and you always find the next bolter you know, we always talk about the bolter on the end of year tour from the Mitre 10 Cup, who's someone we didn't know, and then the super team. So it, it is a pathway. And I think that is the missing piece of the puzzle for, for Australian rugby, because I think you are proving at that under-20s level, there, there is enough, I suppose, young talent wanting to play rugby. They're not wanting to go to league straight away. They're wanting to wear that Wallabies jersey at under-20 level. So it's, it's about giving them somewhere to go to once they've come off that high of the under-20s. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I think if you look at generally systems, so if you look at world rugby, you know, who are the dominant under 20s teams? It tends to be the countries that have more playing numbers. So in cricket, for example, New Zealand doesn't do well in juniors. It's India and Pakistan. Australia doesn't even do particularly well. It's in the juniors of rugby. It's it's the English and the, um, and, and the New Zealanders offer big player base. Now, at a senior level, it's more about system. So if you look at, say, for example, the, um, you know, the Six Nations under 20, I, I think 
Ireland and Wales might have only won five of the last 20 of those, but they've won most of the Six Nations in the past 16 years. So they tend to do better at that senior point, whereas the, the t talent flowing through the system. So I, I think in Australia, what we always tend to do is the old chestnut, which is we punch above our weight. What's really interesting we found statistically is that the smaller a country, the better they do tend to do at team sports comparatively to individual sports. So I think New Zealand's won 40% of its medals in the Olympics in team sports, whereas, whereas say Japan, China, the UK, it's more like 10%. So New Zealand has a history of, of amazing individual athletes, no question, but their real advantage comes in team off a, off a small basis in many ways. Um, now, if you, get, if you then get uh, a really good system like New Zealand rugby, um, their success has been so systematic over, over such a long period of time. And one thing that I do does worry me a bit is this uh, overt, ridiculous, no offence, reverence towards the All Black, like they're some kind of magical being, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. And they're just, as far as I can understand, they're actually humans. And I think we tend to overplay that notion of the All Blacks being subhuman or sub, sub, more than more than a human being, like a Superman. And so that tends to intimidate, um, particularly a lot of the Northern Hemisphere countries. It's interesting that the um, that adds to the cohesion. We've seen the Welsh, you know, play around with national anthems. We've seen, you know, a lot of chat about Harkers happening, Harkers not happening. When the All Blacks go up north, it's constant whenever that happens. And it, it always works against the team who are coming up with that philosophy. Almost always. It never works for them. If, if the All Blacks, if the Harker was any advantage, when the All Blacks play with a poor team, they would still win games and they don't. They lose just like anybody else. Like I said, that game against Ireland, that game against um, you know Australia and Perth, the All Blacks have a poor team, they lose, just like everybody else. There's nothing to be gained. I mean, it's great, but there's no, there's no, there's no advantage to the Harker statistically. There's nothing we can see that's making any difference. Um, one of the biggest things we do see in terms of, of uh, bias is, you know, they did a study in English football and found the greater the level of the home crowd, the greater the bias of the referee. Hmm. Because they would, you know, for every 10,000 people, you get one more penalty, um, which shows also, you know, referees are humans as well. So, um, you know, that, that's, that for me showed too is I think that the way in which we set up Super Rugby there from 11 onwards probably meant New Zealand uh, missed out on a couple of titles during that period of time because they would have got home finals, but because they were playing each other, they ended up having to play away finals quite regularly. Yeah, yeah, and we're looking at this competition this year where these teams aren't necessarily playing that many home games and we're probably going to look at two Kiwis playing at home in a final, which seems really strange in a competition where they don't play each other at all for the five weeks of it. <laughs> Well, they've played enough of each other, I think. But it, 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 is, it is strange. Um, and I think it is getting to the point, especially around bonus points, if you look at the two teams that, you know, obviously the Blues and the Canes have got, you know, 10. And it, it, you're almost thinking now the team that is going to make the final has to win five. And, mm. and, you know, and well. And well, you're going to have to get bonus points, maybe all of them, you know, to, to secure it. Get the get the full twenty five, which is crazy to think. Thank, thank, thank goodness we don't have a system where the number one team, Australian team, plays the number one New Zealand team, because <laughs> you might end up with a final between a team that has not won a game <laughs> um, against another team. So that would not be yeah, that would not be a great outcome. I, I think in Australia, what's actually been called for on social media is for us to not play New Zealand anymore, to close it off. But um, people saying let's just have Super Rugby AU. That'd be great, and my response is sometimes you just got to take your medicine, and that's and what we I just need to take our medicine right now. That's what I was alluding to with Brad Thorne's comments because I think it's better for athletes to get out there and in the ring, and sometimes you just got to take a few punches in the snout to learn how to take them and get better at defending them, and and come out and learn how to throw a few of your own. And, and I think it's better for world rugby and it's better for New Zealand rugby for Australia to be strong as well. And it's better for audiences for it to tighten up again. And the only way for the competition to tighten up again is for us to continually play each other. And, I th and, and I'm, I'm 
genuine that we want tighter derbies as viewers because that's when it's at its best spectacle. But the only way to do that is if we play each other more yeah. so that teams can get used to each other's styles. And, you know, like when I look at um, some of the things that have beaten the Australian defence, so I'll use on the weekend... Um, Sever Reese's first try when um, Ethan Blackadder hits a short tip ball and he offloads to Richie Moanga and Richie Moanga runs and links up with Sever Reese against the Reds. Um, Stewart stays wide defensively in the Reds, but we know that Richie Moanga is always out the back of that forwards uh, pod. He's always looking to run and split that defence and you never stay wide there. You always have to have a defender on Richie Moanga out the back there. You never leave him on his own and they left him on his own, and he takes that all day. He's always going to slip up there and look for that offload off that forward, but we've played Richie so much. We know Richie. We know his ins and outs. We've played him for the last two years, and the Aussies don't know that yet, but the more they play him, they're going to learn that, and they're going to, they're going to learn their knack of that, and it won't be as easy as that. Do you know what I mean? So it's crucial that they get more time on the grass with learning the intricacies of these players so that it tightens up the competition, it makes it harder for them to get these, these points. I, I certainly know through Super Rugby is that at the Brumbies we used to have to, you know, almost replan around playing the New Zealand teams in terms of putting more guys into the ruck because we knew if the early games were against other Australian teams or other South African teams, you could get away with putting two to the ruck in attack and it wouldn't be a problem and you'd get a quick recycle, whereas... New Zealand teams, we'd have to basically do it completely differently. So you can get into these habits that work against your own country but don't necessarily work against the opposition. I think that that notion of being closed, you know, it really hit home, you know, in, if you go back to 1995, is that Japanese rugby really did not, did not really play other countries, particularly a lot of the time. They played against Korea quite a bit. Japanese rugby was, you know, people were very happy with it because they were internally doing very, very well. But then they got the shock of their lives when they go to, I think it was Bloemfontein, mm. they lose by 145 and it's like, oh, okay, now we know where we are. And <laughs> just, they just had no notion that they were so far behind. And they've caught up. They've caught up and they've got, you know, they've got a, a much uh, better standard. They've got foreign coaches. They've got some foreign players. But playing against, you know, good opposition, getting against good scrums made a massive difference for Japanese rugby over time. So if we shut up shop here... In Australia, we're done. Mm. You know, just just that's the end of it. So it's we just, have to keep going. That's not the Australian way, though, either. Like that's the one thing I admire about Australian is that like you want to take the fight to us. You know, like it's just not the way that you go about things. It's 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 normally the way you want to fight and and take it. You know, you you're normally good at taking your medicine and and you'll get the you'll get your way back and enjoy crying from the rooftops when you're back on top. Yeah, we're horrible winners. Yeah. Uh, only, be, only best of by the English in terms of being <laughs> horrible winners. Um, I, I think that that this is this is an outcome of something's been going for a long time. You know, Australian rugby's been dropping two or three percent now since '03 or even '01. Actually, is when it first sort of started to come back. And so we've had a long time losing, and people can't really see a way forward because they got very enthusiastic. Off, off Super Rugby AU, which was this echo chamber. You know, this is great, we're doing well, we're, you know, look how well the Reds are doing. But, you know, on the weekend, you, you know, if you, t if you take out the force, which have an unbelievably experienced team, mostly off the back of a couple of Irishmen and uh, New Zealanders, the average Australian team was at 500 professional games less than the New Zealand teams. So they're just kids. Yeah. And it's unfair of us to, 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 to bash them you know, the cohesion numbers are 20, 30% down on every team. And, um, you know, particularly look at the Waratahs at the moment. Um, you know, they, they they are just a bunch of young guys doing the very best they can. And particularly on social media, people have just been absolutely hammering them. But I think one thing that did happen was people have stopped kind of saying they just need a new coach. They just need a new superstar. I think they've kind of gotten past the fact that that's going to be the answer because it's not. So, Rob Penny, do you feel should have been stuck with? I think that the problems needs, you know, so we have we have clients in this industry. We can't certainly just can everybody. But <laughs> what I would say is, no coach, no no statistically, there's no coach in the world that could have got the Waratahs 
to win any more games than Penny did this year. I'd say the same for the Rebels. I'd say the same for all the Australian teams. That that the outcome is the outcome, and um, they they weren't functioning under their capacity. They've, they've they've all been functioning at their capacity, and all the Australian teams have now for quite some time. Um, there's no one really doing poorly comparative to their numbers. Mm. So creating cohesion within a young team that's getting flogged, is that an easy thing to do? No, and, and one of the difficulties is, is action bias. So interestingly, what we find is when teams lose, they overchange the team. So if they, even if they lose by one point, they'll tend to look at it more disastrously and they'll make two or three changes just by default. And the problem is if you keep changing a team that's losing, it doesn't grow. It stays where it is and everyone else goes past it. And particularly as the season goes on, if you keep chopping and changing your team, because if you can imagine everyone's building understanding as a comp goes on, like I said to the French with World Cups, you know, they, they get much better towards the end. You see, you have to basically hold together when you're losing, which is really, really hard. And so we, we looked at the NRL, for example, we looked at every game that was lost by 20 points uh, or more, and then we saw what happened in the next game. And we saw that if they made three changes, I think they only won something like 34% of the time. If they made two changes, it was like 39. If they made one change, it was 43. And if they made no changes, it was 49% chance they won. So doing nothing to a team that's lost by 20 points is much more likely to end in a positive outcome than making, than making changes. But try telling that to a coach. I have to do something. I've got pressure from the board. Mm. You know, there's a term we call the game line curse, which is if a coach comes to us and asks us to present to the board, he's got four weeks till he's fired. Because <laughs> he's it's it's too late, right? We have to. You, yeah. You're trying to back. You're trying to reverse engineer permission to fail. And the um, the so irony you, is, yep. is sometimes you see in successful teams when they lose and it's it's a shock horror, their coach comes out and says, "No, I'm putting the same team out." And they can rectify this, which is sort yeah, of ironic because they've got the confidence. They've yeah. got the confidence to do it. Bell yeah. Bellamy doesn't worry about getting fired. Yeah, you know. Interestingly, we found that when a coach um, often comes in, the later he gets the job, the better they do because they don't have time to turn over the list. But oftentimes they'll wait, and then a year later they'll turn over the list, and oftentimes that will then get the coach fired two or three years down the track. If you look at generally, the more uncohesive a whole system is, the longer, uh, the shorter the period of time uh, coaches survive in their job. So you look at, say, for example, the AFL. It's the highest cohesion league in the world. It's, there's a percentage called TWI, average about 70%. And I think the average coach is about four and a half years. Let's go to the other end of that scale, Brazilian football. The average coach lasts three months. So, so they just, they just, they're told to fix the problem tomorrow. Uh, English second division football, um, the championship is eight months. Mm. So how do you coach under those scenarios? It's extremely difficult. And so chaos begets chaos uh, a lot of the time with teams and coaches. And, and it's a tried and true method that we see across all of these leagues. And it's amazing that it hasn't quite caught on across the board that just show a touch of patience and you might get there. Well, yeah, there's a term that Tottenham use, which is you show faith in your academy and, you look after your academy, your academy will look after you. But one of the difficulties is when you've got a team and it's doing very well, it's very well built, and you make one trade, that one trade will work because it doesn't create too much chaos. And then they think to themselves, so trading works, let's do it again, let's do another two. <laughs> well, then you bring in those two, and then the two 19-year-olds who are going to have that position in the club, they leave. Then you do it again, it's like, oh, we just got the wrong players because they don't look at these decisions over the long term. They just look at them as, as okay, this happens, this happens. So we, we say that each trade has a life of about eight years of how it plays out and, and of the impacts of those decisions over time and, and their impact on the coaches and everybody around them. And these things accumulate, errors accumulate. And, um, and, and an interesting number is there's a minimum amount of what we will call cohesion required to win the NRL. The Warriors have never been above that number their entire existence. But that's not necessarily any individual coach, coach's fault. There's been changes of ownership, changes of board members, you know, changes of people go through the place. They've never quite accumulated enough 
to get to the point where they could be able to win. And the difficulty with the NRL is you have to be, as a non-Sydney team, 10 to 20% better than everybody else because you've got to overcome playing an away final. Mm. Um, as the Melbourne Storm have found out a few times. <laughs> um, I'm going to spin this around because we need to talk a bit of international footy, but let's start with, with the same theme. So in New Zealand, we've, we've come up with this thing where Steve Hansen takes over from Graham Henry, Ian Foster then takes over from Steve Hansen. Um, the, the players stayed the same. We stuck with Richie at 10, Bowden at fullback when we went into the next thing. And, and to me, that sounds like cohesion. But when you look at last year's results, it wasn't. So there's many different forms of it. You can have a, a system, like Australia used to have a cohesive system, but in the 90s, for example, under Greg Smith, he would chop and change the team quite a bit. One of the things is everybody had to train all week. So there's three sort of components to it. There's one is the daily, the daily team or the weekly team that plays every game. Then there's the changes you make in between the systems, in between the seasons. And then there's the system as a whole. So the smaller the system, the more aligned the system, the easier it's going to be. You can have a bunch of players that play together for a long time, but if you say, right, now we're going to shift from man-on-man -man to zone defence, that, that understanding they've had together actually starts to work against them and they struggle with that. So there's all of these different components. You know, New Zealand has been dealing with the, the players shifting overseas for a long period of time. And I feel like the last four years it's just started to drop their numbers quite a bit. And they haven't been as uh, aligned to an individual club as much as they used to. They used to tend to be more Crusaders, Ford, Pack, Hurricanes, backline. I mean, if you look at the career of Nonu with and without Conrad Smith, uh, you know, that's such a great example of someone playing well with somebody and not able to play well, say, when he was at Highlanders or the Blues. So there's, there's, there's small components. They've got continuity of the coach, but there's this continual drip down and, um, you know, that, that centre's position, particularly for New Zealand in the last World Cup, was a massive issue. And it was getting changed very, very late in the piece. We were doing it even later, uh, but, but it was getting very late. You know, we, if you look at South Africa, even though Erasmus came in, he did two things. The team he basically started with 18 months out was the team he finished with. Mm. It was unbelievably similar. And I think he took 24 former, former or current Stormers players with him. Um, and so they were able to, to put that together pretty quickly and that worked, worked pretty well. So there's fundamentally three ways to win a World Cup. You can either be together for a long time as a test team like England. They need about eight years. You can choose from a singular club like Checker did with the Waratahs in 2015. Or you can be unbelievably consistent in the two years coming up to the World Cup. And everyone who's won that tournament has done one or two or three of those things. And, uh, and New Zealand didn't quite do that in the last one. Mm, mm, I, I suppose you have a lot of talent and you suddenly have problems with picking in the centres. You know, if you've got an Antonina Brown, you've got Jake Gucci, you've got Ryan Crotty, you've got SBW, suddenly you're tempted to try all of those different things, aren't you? Let's have a look at the All Blacks loose forwards this year. We're in a similar position. A lot of guys who aren't tried and tested test footballers who are very much in the mix. Um, and there are a lot of them in form. Yeah, and, and I think going off that school of thought, you want to nail it down this year if you want to get that two years of consistency going into 2023. And I, I, I mean, the, you know, if you look on the weekend, Blackadder comes into it now because of his versatility at 6, 7 and 8. And he, he, he's starting to show he's a line-out option. He's great around the breakdown. He's good in the carry. He's a bigger body on defence now. Um, he know, we know he's got a link game. So, you know, he's right into the conversation. We know Papali'i's there. We know Savia's there. The kid is there. Hoskins is there. Um, I know I'm missing someone. Sam Kane. Sam Kane. Um, it's, it's just, it's, um, it's the, oh, it's Shannon Frizzell. Shannon Frizzell. I, I knew I was missing someone else. Um, it, it's hard. But with injuries, as we've seen, there's, there's going to be created opportunity. Uh, but I think like we're discussing and realising that you do need to almost knuckle it down this far out or you have to go to, you know, looking at do looking at the Crusaders maybe and do we knuckle down and, and say, you know, I think even Cullen Grace probably played his best game 
for a long time on the weekend. He was he was back to the form that got him into the All Blacks. So he comes back into the reckoning as well. And then do you go down that, oh, do we stick with a, a cohesive unit as in the Crusaders? And and that type five starting to really work well together. George Bauer's been in there, but then Aidan Ross is playing really well. You know, there's that prop position as well. There's, I mean, there's decisions. It's made me think, like this conversation here has made me think like a lot more about selection not based on individual form, about the cohesive selection as well. Because so so often I just look at the individual form and think to pick who's playing well rather than thinking what's actually going to gel together, what's best for the All Blacks in that sense. So if we're thinking about something like that, Ben. You, you've obviously got uh, Sam Whitelock and Barrett. also Bo, uh, not Bowden Barrett, Scott Barrett, who play together throughout the year. And then we've got Brody Retallick coming back from Japan who hasn't been in New Zealand for a while, but has obviously played the majority of his career with Sam Whitelock. You know, what is the best way to go there? So, so what we've got there is we've got um, two choices that are both equally quite good. So that's not that's not catas- that's not potentially catastrophic. <laughs> yeah. The difficult. So, so if both of those can work. What we talk what we talk about oftentimes in Australian rugby is we have two horrible choices. Do we pick the kid or do we pick the other guy who's never played with the other guy? You know, and that's sort of like the decisions they end up having to make, you know, with the centres last year. Or do we take the guy who's not in form? And, and so what you want is you want to build a system where you're automatically making really easy decisions. You either play with the guy who you play club with or you play with the guy you've already played 40 tests with. But that requires a, a whole bunch of, of things to be in place in order to let you do it. I, I think one of the things I was thinking about with selection is, Whoever the selectors are, you need to have basically one opinion per team. I, I think that if you look at the Wallabies, uh, you know, heading into 19, they introduced a selection panel. So you had Scott Johnson, Michael O'Connor, Michael Checker, who may have all had a different opinion as to what the backline should have been. And that's exactly how it looked, because the backline changed every game. Mm. And at one point, Matt Samuel seems quite, quite, hard, quite hard to, to, to get ready for a test, because they were just reintroducing each other and shaking hands, you know, in the training session. Um, you know, I have this. So, so you don't want any overlap. You pick the forwards, I pick the backs. Let's go from there. So, people ask me who who the best selector is. I say a paper bag because at least a paper bag doesn't change its mind. <laughs> you know, so at least they're consistent. And and you know, when, when I was at the Brumbies, we had Bernie Larkham. The Waratahs in that time had 15 different number tens. None of them were the answer, and all of them were the answer. But they just never were able to stick with anyone long enough to be the answer. Um, and that was the nature of. That's the nature of New South Wales rugby. Mm. Mm. We've seen that with the Blues. Consistency with Autori Black has been good. Yeah, and he's playing well. I mean, you look at him on the weekend, I think he's had two weeks where he's been in great control. I think he's, had a, he's personally had a great year and he's enjoying the combination he's building now with, with Finlay Christie, uh, being able to string some games together and he's, he's always had a great relationship, we know, with Sam Knox. So he's building that cohesion there um, and, he's, and he's building a good... I suppose, um, connection with the guys outside him as well. So uh, long may it continue. I'm enjoying it. Put <laughs> Top it that of the way. table. But to be fair, I was um, uh, um, in seeing Oatsy. I was having a coffee with him today. And uh, I think the standards and expectation on himself, like he wasn't happy. He wasn't happy with the way the team went and the group went. And they won 48-21. Mm. You know, and I think that's the nice thing to know and hear is that they, they didn't perform to where they wanted to, even though they got the result. But the, the errors were high and, and the level of intent where they wanted to be at um, and where they know they have to be at if they want to win this competition, they weren't there compared to where they were at the Rebels. So, you know, that's, that's good to hear as well and that's where the standards need to be and where he's at and that's what he's driving, which is great to hear. Well, they got the Brumbies this weekend. If I, if I, yeah. Sorry. Carry on, I was just going to say, if I make a comment about the, about the Blues, this is generally more over the last year. So we've seen an increase from them in that... TWI the last couple of years. But generally, the Blues have been what they might call a flat-track bully. I don't know if you guys have heard that term before. Yeah. yeah. Which is they'll, they'll pants by big scores, poor teams, but when the pressure comes on and they have to deal with complexity under duress and detail of an opposition, they tend to they tend to fall away. And the biggest concern for me of the Blues is not the score they scored, it's the score they were scored against them. Yeah is the 21 points against them. That's the part they have to get right because the really good teams will just... If you look at the Panthers this year, 
I think up until last week, after 10 games, they'd let in seven points a game. They just don't. They just, and, and, the, and the correlation between a team being a good defensive team and winning the comp is much greater than a team being a good attacking team. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the old adage, defence wins championships, it still hangs true, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I think we've discovered the cliches generally are working today. That's yeah. Really <laughs> our, our business is entirely built on cliches. We've just taken every cliche and studied it. <laughs> just go about proving it. We've got a few games this weekend, though. We've got the Canes Force, the Tars Crusaders, the Blues Brumbies, the Reds Chiefs and the Highlanders Rebels. I just want to look at that Blues Brumbies game because of the way the Brumbies are tracking. They have started with three away games in this competition which is brutal brutal that it's almost like they never stood a chance you know well, the, the draw was against them to be and now fair, they go against the blue side that can score points for the brumbies if there was a side to do it i would have expected them to do it just based on their history and the way they've played but the one area and i'll, I'll be interested to hear ben's thoughts on this is just surprising for me is they've always been able to go to their mall and their scrum in the past but that's where they've been dismantled um, you know, their, their scrum and their, their maul is just not there. They were, they were put to task by the Chiefs. Um, I don't quite know what went on in Christchurch at scrum time. And, you know, they got two wallaby props. Um, and they just, they went to the corner a lot on the weekend against the Chiefs. And the Chiefs just nullified their maul. And that, that's what we're used to seeing Stephen Moore or Pocock score tries off in the past. And it just isn't there for them to build their, I suppose, energy... Um, and I suppose, uh, what's it called? Uh, just pressure. Yeah, oh, but it's like it's like what they're known for, you know. And the, and and then it doesn't give that front foot ball for guys like uh, Noah Lolosio to to set um, things alight. Like he's always off the back foot, and they're not winning that breakdown. So they just can't get their game going. It feels their forwards just get a little bit beaten up. If, if we just take the scrum perspective. The last two weeks, they've been running with a new 1-4 combination. So I think Alatoa and Frost. So Frost was previously playing at six okay. and is now at left side lock, whereas previously had Caden Neville, who's more of a traditional type, you know, um, uh, right side. So they just kind of, sorry, uh, three and five. Sorry, three and five, Nick Frost. And three, three and five is outside the backs as a prop, the most important relationship on the field. Um, and if you look at that, that like I said, that all game against Ireland, you look at Australia in 06, when our backs had a very hard day, he had a flanker behind him. So they tend to look at the front rowers when the scrum doesn't go right. But that connection, three to five, one to four, has changed for the Brumbies. And so they're kind of adapting that now. I think it's, um, I think the one at three and five are only the second game together. So that might be contributing towards that. that yeah, and it, it does look like, it just doesn't look like they're generating the, the power from behind. Like I'm... Look, I'm first to admit I know it's an eight-man issue, but it just it looks like they're almost getting long-legged as well, so they're not able to generate that second shunt. They're not in that 120 degrees where you can get in a position where you can go again and again and again. They almost are overextended. So under pressure, they're just, they're, they're just no good. If, if, I can, if I can say to you, uh, they say it's one-to-eight scrummaging, but it isn't necessarily my experience. So we had a... We had a Wallabies training session. We didn't have any number eights. So they asked me to go on the back as a number eight and push. And, I'm, and we come up from the scrum and the locks turn around and give me this filthy look like, what are you doing? I said, I'm pushing. They said, we've never felt anything like that before. So I don't know what eights are doing at the back of the scrum. <laughs> I think they're sometimes just hanging on with their shoulders. Yeah. The point. <laughs> Popping their head up and having a look yeah. out towards the backs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as much yeah. as anything. Well, I mean, this has been some good front row chat, but we are out of time. So, um, you know, I've got to cut this short because this could probably last all night. Oh, it could. I've loved it. I've, <laughs> I've learned plenty. Yeah. So thank you very much, Ben. Thank you for joining us. It has been enlightening, informative, and I'm sure our viewers and our listeners will absolutely appreciate all of the knowledge you've brought to the table across a million codes. Oh, yeah. Like, I love game. my NRL too, so you really appeased me there. <laughs> so thank you very much for joining us uh, from Australia, Ben Darwin. Of course, James Parsons, as usual, over here. And enjoy your weekend's footy this weekend. Five games coming up on rugbypass.com if you're around the world and, of course, on Sky Sport if you're in New Zealand. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.